Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to the podcast where we're working through the New Testament, doing overviews of the different books in it. And we have come to a much longer book. We've kind of slowed down for a while looking at some smaller of Paul's letters. Uh, But now we come to the letter to the Hebrews. And we're going to have to move faster today. (laughs) So apologize that uh, we will be skimming uh, this book to make it uh, digestible in uh, one episode. But this is a fantastic letter in the New Testament. And it really is a, uh, it's a little bit of a different flavor and a little bit of a different pace than the other New Testament books. And one of the things we'll just emphasize from the outset, and we'll get a little bit into this when we talk about the audience more, but it's really written a lot like you would read a sermon. Like if you were to manuscript a preacher's sermon and then just take it home and read it, that's kind of what Hebrews is. He's got very logical points and it just all flows together really well. He's got application sections at the end of each of his uh, you know, going back to the Old Testament and looking at it. So it, it really is written a lot like a sermon or series of sermons, maybe. And it all centers around the idea of how great Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And so how needed is that for us to just have a better appreciation for who Jesus is and what he did for us? And it's kind of cool because the the book in some ways serves as kind of a hub of the old between the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. Um it really does an amazing job of looking at what was going on in the Old Testament and the symbolism of it and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament systems that God put in place, that God planned this all out to bring Jesus to us. And so um, it's called Hebrews because it is written to Jewish Christians. and uh, Or Hebrews, you might say. Um, so that's why we call it to the Hebrews or um, the book of Hebrews. And it's really interesting because these Jews had accepted Christ. If you read through, you can tell that these are Christians. They believe in Jesus. They've accepted that he is the Messiah. But they are facing persecution. Uh, You can see that later in chapter 10. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit when we get there, chapter 10, 32 through 34, that they've suffered because they've accepted Jesus. And you see that in like the book of Acts and other places, that Jews who accept Jesus are often turned on by their family members, by their fellow Jews. But they are being tempted to let go of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And something that I guess I didn't realize for a long time as I was reading this book is that when Jewish Christians, like when, when Jews became Christians, they didn't stop being Jews or even practicing some of the parts of Judaism that at that point had basically become cultural practices, but they still, you know, didn't, you know, they still ate kosher. Yeah. <laughs> they still uh, observed the Sabbath. They still went to the temple. They still at times made sacrifices. One notable example is a couple of them in the book of Acts. One is in Acts chapter three, where Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. That's like a Jewish tradition. So like they were still Jews practicing the Jewish stuff. Now, they're worshiping Jesus as well. Um, Paul, I think, is really interesting. In Acts 21, 26, he offers sacrifices 
for the purification of these guys who were under a vow to show that he wasn't teaching Jews to stop being Jews. And so sometimes in the book of Hebrews, people say, oh, these people are being tempted to go back to Judaism. Well, they were still practicing Judaism. They were really, well, the thing that was happening is they were being tempted to give up on Jesus and go back to only Judaism. And so that's why the author of Hebrews approaches this book the way that he does, is he's trying to encourage these Christians to realize what they have in Christ that is better than the Old Testament practices mm-hmm. that they have. Um, and so to not not give up. Yes. And, and like Stephen said, these brethren are suffering as a result of their faith in Jesus. Uh, there's a section in chapter 10 we might look at a little bit later where it makes it clear that not only are they suffering now, but they have suffered in the past as well. They have been persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And now they're being tempted to turn their back um, completely on Jesus. And so that's a little bit about the audience. Um, it is interesting to note that, like like we've been talking about, we, we don't know who the author is itself. Right. That's the big question with Hebrews, right? Yeah. Everyone wants to talk about, well, is it Paul? Is it Barnabas? You know, they, they, everyone tries to dissect it. But look, we don't know who it is. But uh, what's really, I think, pretty clear at the end of the letter they likely would have known who the author was by some of the personal notes that he sends to them and says to them, talks about wanting to come and see them, so that they probably would have known who it was. But regardless of, of who wrote it, it is spirit-inspired. Uh, it is very clearly God-breathed, and the, the truths that are in this book are timeless and endless across all generations of Christians, and so we need to be appreciative for that. So uh, I, my encouragement to people is instead of spending hours of research trying to dissect and figure out who wrote it, how about you spend hours studying it and applying it to your life? That seems like a better use of our time. Yeah. So for the sake of that, we're not going div- to dig into the different possibilities of who wrote it. Yes. So the book of Hebrews, when you kind of do an overview of it, there's four m- main sections. Again, there's different ways to do this. But each of the first sections of the book, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10, uh, verse 18, are, are all comparing Jesus with things from the Old Testament. Um, in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than the angels and better than the Torah, the Old Testament law. Um, in chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus is better than Moses and better than the promised land in Canaan, the rest that they enjoyed there. Jesus has a better rest than that. Um, in chapter 4, 14, all the way through chapter 7, a big chunk of the book, he spends a lot of time showing how Jesus is better than the priests and the priesthood. And then in chapter 8 through chapter 10, verse 18, uh, Jesus is better than the old covenant and better than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He, he gave a once-for-all sacrifice. And then really, chapters 11 through 13 are kind of the, the bigger uh, application section at the end of the book. Famously, chapter 11, about faith. Um, then encouragement concerning endurance in chapter 12 and discipline. Uh, there's a really cool section on Sinai and Zion at the end of chapter 12. And then the pleasing sacrifices that we should be offering um, in chapter 13 and just along with various other things about how we should live um, under Jesus. But the main message of all this is that Jesus is better. He is superior to 
the Old Testament system. God gave the Old Testament system, and it was exactly what was needed at that time. But now that Jesus has come, don't cling to something and reject Jesus um, because Jesus is better than this old system. Yes, amen. And so just backing up and talking overview of chapter 1 and chapter 2, as we recircle to this idea of Jesus being better than the angels and the law, first question is, is well, why does that matter? Like to, to us as, you know, Gentiles and people who are following Christ now, it might be a little confusing to us as to why he even needs to start here. But it needs to be understood kind of how the Jewish mind would have thought about angels and would have thought about the old law. Um, it's interesting that in chapter 2 and verse 2, it'll say, For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. More so trying to focus in on here that the word was spoken through angels is what is being emphasized. They were the messengers of the old law. Right. Uh, Stephen in his sermon will say something similar in Acts 7 verse 53. And Paul will say something similar in Galatians 3 and verse 19. And so you see that the angels were the ones that brought the law forth. And you can see then the amount of weight that they would have had in the Jewish mind. But here he is emphasizing how Jesus is far greater than even those messengers of God. He is not just a messenger. He is the messenger that God has sent. And so chapter 1 verse 2 says, In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the best messenger. Uh, He is the greatest messenger that there is. Yes. And so chapter 1 is kind of this rapid fire of Old Testament passages just saying, hey, none of these were talking about the angels. (laughs) This is all about Jesus. Exactly. So it uses the Old Testament. Again, these are Jewish Christians. They would have known the Old Testament. And they would have been like, oh, wow, that's right. Like, if Jesus is superior to the angels, then his message is superior to the old law given through angels. And chapter 2 um, starts with an exhortation we'll come back to in a second, but it continues with kind of a defense of like, well, then why did Jesus have to become a human? Because aren't humans lower than the angels? Right. And so it's this discussion of why Jesus had to become man, and it's this beautiful answer of it's, it's fitting that he was made perfect through suffering. And now he's able to call us brothers because he's become one of us. And so he's still superior to the angels, even though for a little while he became lower than the angels. And so it's things that would have been particularly significant to the Jews in the way they thought about the law and the angels, but are really powerful for us in thinking about, wow, what a blessing that Jesus has become our brother and suffered like we have. So that he's able to help us. Um, that's how chapter 2 wraps up. It's just a beautiful thing. Yes. And so if, if Jesus is the better messenger, that means he has a better message uh, than what the angels had. And so chapter 2, 1, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. That's the biggest concern for the Hebrew writer is they're drifting away. And I love that imagery, Stephen, mm-hmm. because drifting away carries with it the idea of it happening slowly. Mm-hmm. Just a little at a time. Falling away from Christ is never just one big moment, one big thing that happens. A lot of times, in many cases, it's someone who has slowly and slowly drifted away. Mm-hmm. And we have an anchor that keeps the soul. We'll talk more about that in just a second. You know, you need to be anchored in Christ and don't 
need to be tossed here and there yeah. uh, by every wind of doctrine. Which is kind of cool to see um, in each of these four big sections, there's an encouragement section. And here in chapters one and two, it's right in the middle of it. Sometimes it's at the end. Sometimes it's like different places. But chapter two, verses one through four is kind of the encouragement section, which is mainly don't drift away, mm-hmm. you know, hold fast. That's going to be a real big theme in this book, again, because what they're t- being tempted to do is to let go of Jesus and go back to only Judaism. Uh, so he's saying, don't let go, hold fast. Mm-hmm. So chapter 3 and 4, it's kind of interesting. It almost forms its own little sermon. Um, he introduces chapter 3 with talking about how Jesus is better than Moses, just as the builder of a house is better than the one serving in the house. And that's really cool to think about Jesus being the creator of everything um, versus Moses, who was a faithful servant. He's not trying to downplay Moses, but he's trying to show how much better Jesus is than Moses. And, of course, what greater thing to show to a Jew who's mm-hmm. struggling with holding the law because it's the law of Moses. Like, he was the lawgiver, the giant that dominated, um, you know, Jewish history, and Jesus is even better than him. But then he kind of, it kind of becomes a, a textual sermon in chapter 3 and 4 based on Psalm 95, where he quotes from Psalm 95 about the unfaithful generation in the wilderness and how they didn't enter into God's rest, even though they had the law. And he turns it into an exhortation and says, hey, like, you can fall into the same trap by letting go of Jesus. Uh, so Psalm 95 is talking to you today. And he plays off that word today in yes. this section. is really cool. And so one of his encouragements in chapter 3, verse 12, is take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, quoting from Psalm 95, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Mm-hmm. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Yes. So there's this beautiful section that goes right into chapter 4. I think mean, this is all one unit where he thinks about Canaan and says, listen, if Joshua had really given them rest during the conquest, there wouldn't have been a need for David to even write Psalm 95, saying, let's be diligent to enter that rest. And now he's picking that back up hundreds of years after David and saying, hey, there's still a rest for the people of God. Yes, and so verse 11 of chapter 11, or sorry, verse 11 of chapter 4, rather, says, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. These things happen as an example for us to learn from. But then in verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We, like the Israelites, are in our wilderness period, waiting to go into our final rest, but we can live by the word of God in that wilderness. It is capable of, of sustaining us and getting us through. And so we got to learn from their example um, in their disobedience, but also in their short-sightedness as well. Yeah. And so chapter 4 uh, it's just a really beautiful encouragement to us to to live by faith in the Word of God. Um, and so it ends with pointing us to Jesus, the high priest, which really serves as a good bridge into what the next section is about, that Jesus is greater than the priests and just the priesthood in general, of uh, the, the tribe of Levi and all the different things that they had as their responsibilities. Jesus is far better than that. And 
he's from a different line of priesthood specifically mm-hmm. from the yeah. order of a guy named Melchizedek. Yeah, and this is interesting because this is where the book does get a little more technical. Um, he's going to be speaking to Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures really well, and he could assume some knowledge, some background knowledge from them. And he said, all right, you're familiar with all this. So he'll like throw some stuff out real quick, but then say, hey, do you realize that all this is pointing to Jesus? And so really all the way through chapter 7, we're going to have this theme of the priests and the priesthood. In chapter 5, he, he makes some points uh, from the Psalms about how Jesus didn't make himself a high priest, but he was made a high priest by God. And then he starts to talk about Melchizedek, but he kind of has a timeout and like he drops the encouragement section in the middle of this again. And this is the longer, one of the longest ones. Chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through 612, he really drops the hammer. And he's like, guys, listen, you, you should do better than this. You should have already be teachers, but you need to go back to the basics. Like, what's going on? Come on. And he gives a very stern warning in chapter 6 about the danger of falling away. Uh, he'll give another stern one in chapter 10. But um, he's like, you guys, this is basic stuff. You guys need to know this. And you need to, make, you need to be careful that you don't let go. Um, but after dropping the hammer, he, he follows it up with some more encouragement and says, oh, well, we're sure of better things in your case. Uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Um, God's not unjust to overlook the good work that you're doing. And then after uh, that, he comes back to the certainty of God's promise. This is where we get the anchor of the soul at the end of chapter 6. Um, that Listen, you've got something firm that's not going anywhere. God has sworn with an oath. You can bank on this. It is an unmoving anchor for your, for your hope. So don't let go. And then he gets into the Melchizedek chapter, which is, again, is one of these things that, like, if the author of Hebrews had not written a whole chapter yes. on Melchizedek, we would read through Genesis 14 where that story comes from and be like, well, that was kind of weird. Moving on. <laughs> which makes his point very interesting because kind of the whole reason he's into the Melchizedek stuff and, and stops in the middle is to rebuke them for not having picked up on the Melchizedek stuff uh-huh. yet or, or having learned it at least. Maybe yeah. not just pick up on it and figure it out themselves. But it, it drives us to want to be better Bible students and want to continue to look at the Old Testament for these things. But the Melchizedek stuff is really, really cool. Uh, his story comes from Genesis chapter 14. Um, where he was not only a priest of God Most High, but he was also a king of Salem. And we're not given any information about his mother or his father or his genealogy. He just kind of shows up. There's no beginning or end to him. And he's a priest perpetually, chapter 7, verse 3 says. And the point the Hebrew writer is making is that that is the same line of priesthood that Jesus came out of. He, he has no beginning or end. He just is. His priesthood is eternal. It is perpetual in the same way that Melchizedek's was. And if you can imagine that the encouragement that that would then have to these people, you're chasing a system that has a priesthood that's going to come to an end. But in Jesus, his priesthood goes on into eternity. Who would you rather follow, the eternal priest or the temporary priest? Well, obviously you would want to follow the eternal priest, and that's simply what his point is. Stop chasing the temporal priest uh, chase Jesus instead. Uh, his priesthood, he says in verse 24, continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Yeah, and again, sometimes it's easy for us to read a chapter like this and be like, man, that is, that's deep. But the more you study the Old Testament and the more you look at the book of Hebrews, you're like, wow, it was there all along. 
And it makes you marvel at the Bible. Yes. And how this is a divine document written hundreds of years apart, but that all of these truths were there from the beginning. God knew what he was doing when Moses wrote those first five books. And there's truths about Jesus and his kingship, his priesthood, right there at the beginning of the Bible. And I'm sorry, I I didn't emphasize this good enough. Just that having a priesthood permanently, what is the benefit of that? A priest is one that makes intercession for the people to God. And the reason you want one permanently, verse 25 of chapter 7 says, Therefore he, that's Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he is always alive to make intercession for them. That's the emphasis. He lived on into eternity so he can always make intercession for us. That's the benefit of having an eternal priest. Yes. And that, that really leads well into this next big chunk of Hebrews. This is the la- the fourth big chunk of the uh, kind of technical section. I don't know. Uh, chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, verse 18 is going to show how Jesus is superior to the Old Covenant, that relationship that Israel had with God, and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. And in chapter 8, he has this huge quote from Jeremiah 31, which, again, showed, even during the Old Testament, that God knew this was a temporary system. Mm -hmm. He spoke of a new covenant that was going to come. And so he knew what what was on his way. And he brings this out to show, and he, he ends chapter 8 by saying in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I do think that there are some hints in the book of Hebrews that may connect to the coming destruction of mm-hmm. the city with the temple, Jerusalem. And that this book may in some ways be getting the Jewish Christians ready to have to let go of Judaism. Um, Because he's like, there's going to come a point here before too long where Jesus is all you have. Um, So don't let go of Jesus because this old system is on the verge of disappearing. Uh, Now, again, we have to be careful about being too dogmatic about some of those subtle details, but that does seem to be an undercurrent of the book. He'll talk later on that we have no, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There's just some hints like that in the book that, again, Jesus predicted Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and that may be part of the purpose behind this book. And what's really interesting in this section, I mean, although he is emphasizing that the old covenant has passed away and the new covenant has come into effect, it's all centered around the old covenant system of animals' blood covering sin versus the new covenant system of the blood of Jesus covering sin mm-hmm. and how far greater that is. Once for all. Exactly. And that takes center stage really in chapter 9, 11, all the way through the end of chapter 9, end of chapter 10. Um, whenever, like for instance, he says in chapter 9, there in verse uh, verse 12, um, and it's not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, Jesus, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of, of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's emphasizing this idea that in the old law, as you think about that day of atonement and the priest entering into the most holy of holies with animal blood, you know, I picture him, you know, kind of cowardly, you know, oh, here's this. 
what I have here to offer you, God. Whereas with Jesus, he has his blood to offer. And with confidence, we can draw closer to God because that blood we know covers our sins. Mm -hmm. And that really uh, leads well into what he says in chapter 10, that because the Jesus' blood is far better, that makes his sacrifice once and for all. It's not an ongoing sacrifice. It was a once and for all thing. Yes. And, and chapter 10 is where he just kind of continues to build his argument to a crescendo where he brings Jeremiah 31 back in and says, listen, like, this is it. Like, if Jesus is the once for all sacrifice, there's no more need for all these other sacrifices to be made. Now, again, the Jews were permitted to continue doing that for a while. Paul had some sacrifices made at the temple, but it's not that those sacrifices were doing anything anymore. Jesus had died. The blood was shed. It was done. And so he builds to this crescendo at the end and talks about forgiveness, that Jesus' blood is the final thing that's needed for forgiveness in, in 1017. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness for these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Yeah. And it's just the capstone of his argument of saying Jesus is greater. And this is kind of the, the turning point of the book where from here on out, it's going to be all kind of encouragement, and practical application. All right, here's what you need to do. And so Hebrews has this thing where he'll say, therefore, let us. <laughs> um, because of these spiritual truths that sometimes are kind of technical, but when you grasp them, they're very motivating. Because of that, therefore, here's what we need to do. And so I just love 10, 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then he has three let us statements. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The second one, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And then the third one, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He'll go into a lot more detail here in chapter 10, talking about how they suffered before, they were persecuted, and they endured that. So he's like, why are you giving up now? Mm -hmm. And it will give way into this discussion of chapter 11 of endurance. Yes. Look at the people who have endured before you. And just one other thing to emphasize before we look at chapter 11. One of the more famous sections of the New Testament is so much the, the context. And as you can just, if we can all picture for a second, being Jewish Christians who would have grown up knowing the stories in chapter 11, knowing who Abraham was, knowing who Moses is. You know these stories like the back of your hand. And right before he gets into all that, one of the things he'll say is, you have need of endurance. But in verse 38, as he quotes from Habakkuk 2, where God said, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The Hebrew writer says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He is calling them to action by saying, look at generations past. We don't come from the kind that back down. And it really, it would be a rousing speech that he's giving here. 
y'all, we don't come from people that give up is what he's saying. You know, our family isn't like that. And I just think that's really cool that he's he's playing back to all of these Old Testament figures that they would have looked up to and said, are you going to be like your great-great-granddaddy? You know, or are you going to be like him? Are you going to have the same kind of faith that they had? So I love to point out the context of chapter 11 because he's really, he's rallying them up to get excited to say, I want to be like them and I can be like them. Because as we look into chapter 11 now, as impressive of, of the things we see out of people like Abraham and Moses, there's some other people that are in this list that aren't that impressive. That when you read the surrounding context of the victorious thing that they did, they did some foolish things too. Well, guess what? We've done some foolish things too, but by faith and through faith in the Son of God, He is what makes us complete. He is the one that gives us the victory. And so chapter 11 begins with, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. You see this time and time again in the lives of so many in the Old Testament that they put their trust in God's word even over the things in front of them that seemed to contradict the thing that God was saying. But time and time again, God delivered. And they continued to put their trust in him uh, in those future situations as well. And so there's some cool shout-outs here. Abel and Enoch, who I don't think I would have thought to put in the list. But these were two of the men, Abel being the first that died ever, Enoch, one of the first ones that didn't die ever, uh, just taken up to God. And it's emphasizing that it was by faith that these men were saved. Mm-hmm. And so it gives way to what we sometimes call the, the Hall of Fame of faith, which, as you pointed out, you know, not all of these are uh, the people we would think to put in there. But the, the author of Hebrews is building this crescendo of look at who's gone before you. So like you said, Abel... Enoch, then Noah, uh, and then Abraham gets the lion's share of this chapter. Yeah. He gets two big sections. Uh, the first on the fact that he left his land, and there's kind of an exhortation section in the middle. Yeah, Sarah's in there too. 13 through 16, yeah, Sarah as well. Um, but then his sacrifice of Isaac mm-hmm. and the faith that it took to do that. Um, and then Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph get a quick thing together. Um, and then Moses gets another large section. Um, there toward the end. Um, and then it kind of walks through is some of Israel's history. It talks about the, the, the exodus, uh, the conquest. Uh, Rahab makes it into this chapter, interestingly, um, her faith. And then I think this is interesting in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to speak of or to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, um, he just starts listing, and it sounds almost, again almost like it was originally a sermon. Like I'm running out of time here, but let me let me throw some more out here. Um, and again, like David, I would expect there to be a huge section on David, but he's just like thrown out there along with guys like Jephthah, uh, who maybe are not as good of an example overall, but did some acts of faith that are notable, Samson, and commendable. Yes, yeah, Samson's another good bad example. Um, and then he shifts from names into things that were done by faith. Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, quenched the power of fire, um, and then the sufferings that they endured. Uh, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, killed with a sword, went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And so, again, it's an amazing thing to just read mm-hmm. as he's building all of this and saying, look at what they went through. Look at the example of endurance. That's going to be really one of the big 
points of this chapter is at the end of chapter 10, and you need endurance, and the beginning of chapter 12, let's run with endurance. Yes. Look at what they went through. And like Stephen said, thinking about the audience that's receiving this is so important because there's some things in that list that Stephen just went through that he's already mentioned that they're dealing with, specifically at the end of verse 37 as he says that some of these men were ill-treated that's the same exact phrase that he used to describe what they were going through back in chapter 10. And so these brethren would have directly related to the things that these people had went through. So it just makes the point all the more powerful to them. But this section ends in chapter 1139 with all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us that they would not be made perfect. You know, these brethren, while they're suffering, they're not receiving the promise in the moment, but it is to come. And it was the same thing with these Old Testament examples. Many of them suffered before they got the promise and before it came, but they were still putting their faith and trust in God. And so he calls them to the same action. But ultimately, in chapter 12, all of these things point to a greater witness. Uh, although we have this great cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, if we had time, time would fail us. <laughs> we could go back through each of these examples, couldn't we, Stephen, and just emphasize how all of these are really a foreshadow of what Jesus would go through. Each of these examples, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, all of them. And we ultimately look to Jesus as he's the author and perfecter of faith. He, he shows us the way we need to fix our eyes on him and turn our eyes away from the things that easily entangle us. And just I pulled it up in our hymnal here because when we went through Hebrews with the church here at Capital City, one of the songs we sang every time we did a lesson on Hebrews was the song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And it's just two lines. It's originally a chorus from a, from a hymn, but it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There are so many things in this world that distract us and get us down, but if we will just fix and turn our eyes on Jesus, it puts everything else into perspective which is why this is the great crescendo of everything I believe the Hebrew writer has been talking about. Everything that happens after this is kind of a natural application or fallout of everything he's discussed so far. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of chapter 12 is dedicated to endurance in the first part, that you need endurance and discipline to get through all of this. Don't give up. Don't be weary when you're disciplined by God. He's disciplining you to help you even though it doesn't feel that way in the moment. But again, these were exhausted people, and they need a pep talk. And what a pep talk he gives them uh, here at the end of the letter. And um, the end of chapter 12, and really going into chapter 13, he, he uses some Old Testament images again. He contrasts Mount Sinai, where the law was given, to Mount Zion, not the physical Mount Zion, but the spiritual new city of God, and describes that this is where we've come to. If you have Jesus, you are in Zion. You're a citizen of God's city, and you have all the blessings of that. Um, so many cool points that we don't have time to, to delve into. But he talks about that there's a day coming when everything is going to be shaken. 
and only the things that are firm are going to remain. Mm -hmm. And you need a city that has foundations. Like he talks about in Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking for the city that has foundations, whose builder and architect is God. And so the theme of the city is pretty strong here in these last few chapters, chapter 11, chapter 12, and then in chapter 13, uh, where he says, um, uh, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Uh, This is really cool focal point of these last few chapters. And so chapter 13 is just this conclusion of various exhortations, you know, uh, continue to love each other, show hospitality, remember those in prison, treat marriage with honor, uh, don't be greedy. Um, So again, like a lot of letters in the New Testament, it ends with, all right, and here's some practical stuff. Don't let go of this. Keep living right, doing right, hold fast to God. Um, And then there's a couple more things here at the end about sacrifices that I think are really cool. That again, Jesus has offered the once for all blood sacrifice, but there is still a sense in which we're offering sacrifices, even under the new covenant. And I like what he says in verse 15, through him, that's through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So really this whole end of the book is saying, hey, like, we're not offering sacrifices to pay for our sins anymore, but we're still offering to God things that are pleasing to him. And do that with your praise, the fruit of your lips. Do that with the way that you serve other people and the way that you give and share what you have. Um, And so it's really cool to think about, again, in the context of this book to Jewish Christians, how these things would have hit home at the end of saying, hey, continue to serve, continue to do good, um, because look at what God's done for you. Uh, That's really almost every New Testament letter can be boiled down to, here's what you need to do because Mm -hmm. of what God has done for you. And so he encourages them to obey their leaders, to yield and to submit to them because they keep watch over them. But then he has a a request for them, for them to be praying for him and some others. Uh, he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we, uh, that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Again, just possibly a little hint that they would have known who this was. But he's asking for them to pray. Some things we need to be asking others to pray for us about as well. And as he wraps up, uh, now the God of peace who brought you up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that, wi- that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So he calls their attention back to the God of peace. That's uh, makes What makes God the God of peace is ultimately through the blood of his son Jesus, who we have a covenant relationship with. And just some final exhortations there, um, telling them that he's only written to them briefly, uh, take notice of Timothy, that he may be released, and if, if he comes soon, he hopes to see them as well. Those in Italy greet them. Grace be with you all. So a uh, very short greeting section, comparatively to some other New Testament letters. But, man, what, what a cool book. Yes, it's powerful to think about uh, the whole Bible being brought together. See the Old Testament for what it is and see how it is fulfilled in Jesus. It's really, really cool. So, Lord willing, next week we're going to take a look at the book of James. We did do an entire season on it, and so you can feel free to go back and listen to that, but we are just going to do a quick overview of what the book of James is all about. 
yeah, thank you guys for listening to the show today. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, uh, leave us a rating or a review so we can reach more people. Um, if you're interested in online or in-person Bible studies locally or other places, please reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.